Hello, and welcome to Narratives, a podcast where each episode we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction and talk about the real-world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho, and with me is Nick Halper. Hello. I, I was actually going to try to do a singing introduction, but I, I couldn't embarrass myself like that. <laughs> yes, so this, this week is a musical episode. To be clear, it's, <laughs> it's not Nick and I being musical although technically you're just musical because you exist and you do music right yeah i'm a musician of sorts i am most decidedly not and we will spare you the suffering of having to listen to me sing for the most part but this is something that i have wanted to do for a while i have wanted to do a musical something on this podcast and i have tried so hard to find a Broadway musical or like a musical movie of some kind that I could even vaguely relate to neuroscience or clinical neurology or anything that we do here. And I just couldn't find it until I remembered this random episode of Scrubs, a TV sitcom about doctors in a hospital. And I was like, all right, I remember that was a thing because the whole conceit behind why this was musical was because they had a patient who had musical hallucinations. It may be the only musical neuro crossover that will ever be- exist, <laughs> but you found it. And if for whatever reason I missed any and anybody knows of any more, please send us an email at narrativespodcast at gmail.com because I must see it and we must cover it. <laughs> so as far as like motivation for why I have always wanted to do this. Well, I've always had a soft spot for musical theater. I think musical theater is great. And that makes you a special person <laughs> in the scheme of things. And uh, I, I'm really glad for that for you. So, so glad for you. <laughs> I take it you don't agree. <laughs> I, I, I'll i just say I have little experience with musical theater. Maybe that's like the best response. So... My obsession for the last month and a half or so has been this thing called Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You'll have to to tell me a bit more. Who is doing this? (laughs) So it started off as like a local theater thing in LA. I mean, somebody just basically took the uh, plot of Cruel Intentions, adapted it into a musical, and it is what's known as a jukebox musical, which is basically where they take existing songs Mm. and fit them into the structure of a stage show uh, or play. I mean, in some ways, this seems fitting for Cruel Intentions theme-wise. Yes. And like culturally, it makes so much sense. Like normally jukebox musicals are basically avenues to showcase a particular artist's Mm. discography while telling a story. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2020, there was one, there was a Broadway one about that was called Jagged Little Pill that was just all Alanis Morissette songs. 2021, the big one on Broadway was a Tina Turner jukebox musical. But this one's a little interesting in that it doesn't take a single artist's discography. It's a lot more like Rock of Ages in that it just takes a sort of genre in that quote unquote 90s is a genre perfect (laughs) 90s is a genre like 90s pop kind of like 90s popular music right yes i mean at this point it is right (laughs) yeah 
On my music streaming, I literally have had this on repeat at work, in my car, whatever, for like the last month and a half. Just the playlist from the musical? Yes. You're just listening to 90s pop music? Yes, but sung by... Oh, right. Better singers. (laughs) Yes, okay, okay. I don't know how we got on this. I just had to tell you about this, and I just need you to know that this exists. I now know of this thing, which is really important, of course, to me. I really value you sharing this. (laughs) And I now further understand your obsession with musicals, (laughs) which is good context for this 22-minute musical of Scrubs that we've watched. (laughs) I mean, surely you must have watched the pro shot of Hamilton on Disney Plus, though, right? Just to understand the whole deal of why everyone talks about it. Steven, I haven't watched Hamilton. Oh, oh. Okay, well, I mean, it's better than the Scrubs musical episode. I will tell you that. (laughs) Scrubs musical is my current, like, (laughs) uh, set point for what musicals are. So probably it's up from here. Not that this was bad, actually. I mean, all things considered, I think they did... A decent job. I mean, they put a lot of work into it. This was like a highly produced episode with a lot of outside influence. And they had a like legitimate Broadway leading lady as the patient. Yes. Though I, uh, in looking her up, I mostly fixated on her puppeteering history. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we'll talk more about her when we get to this. So Scrubs is a TV series that ran from 2001 to 2010. So it was actually a fairly large part of my teenage years and college years, especially considering the school where I went to, literally everyone was a pre-med and literally everyone wanted to be J.D. and Turk. Yeah, Scrubs definitely colored the pre-med obsession. Like everybody that I knew that was going into like biological sciences was pre-med basically. And it was, I don't know if it's because of shows like this, medical dramas and like medical TV series also seem to kind of just like peak during this period. I don't have data for that, but there was just like so (laughs) many that people seem to be obsessed with, whether it was like Grey's and like more serious ones like Grey's Anatomy or more casual Mm -hmm. ones like Scrubs. And I, I think it like influenced people's perception of like what medicine was like. And was somehow influential on their choice to go into that. Right. And I've always said this, that the most hilarious and ridiculous thing about Scrubs is not necessarily how it depicts life, but the fact that these characters all do their internships, their residencies, and their fellowships at the exact same f***ing hospital over the course of seven years. (laughs) (laughs) The least realistic part. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the the general joyousness and extent of like outside life these characters have is also simply unrealistic. Right. And there are some episodes that sort of like drill down on the sort of grinding nature of residency era. And true. Scrubs is also known as a show that sort of pioneered dramedy style, right? It was very much a mm. comedy. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the first sort of single camera styles without a laugh track. Also had several like very emotionally heavy episodes, right? I specifically remember the one where Brendan Fraser dies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the show definitely addresses like very serious topics, like relatively directly. I mean, we'll even see in this episode, there's a there's a point in it that it's like, it gets kind of serious. Mm hmm. Maybe it's time for a Scrubs rewatch. I don't know. <laughs> There's just so many things on my like things I need to watch list. Even 
exclusive of this podcast that <laughs> just saying well saying yes to one thing is just saying no to a thousand other things man it's true i i'd be kind of curious to know how scrubs was cast versus you know sometimes cast influence how shows end up getting directed or vice versa but i think like the idea of a dramedy style and having zach braff be like a lead in it is seems heavily fitting but i don't really mm-hmm. know zach braff's arc kind of like before or during scrubs right and i don't think so my understanding of zach braff is that he does not exist independently outside of garden state scrubs and then occasionally being a bit on bojack horseman playing a fictionalized version of himself that dies (laughs) okay yeah so maybe this this may be why we associate zach braff with dramedies is because of scrubs and not vice versa that's your argument Okay, let's get into this episode of Scrubs, which is season six, episode six of Scrubs. Yes, and the reason it appears at this time is because they thought this might be the last season of the show. Ah. Like they'd wanted to do musical for a long time, they needed to get it in, and so it was kind of like forced in at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the show did end up going for another season or two. Right, another season, and then that weird last season that isn't really a last season has a whole different cast and people don't like to acknowledge it. Great. All right. So we start off with the scene in Turk and Carla's home. So Chris Turk, he is a surgeon at at Carla is his wife, who is a nurse and um, they have just had a baby and they're like crunching some numbers and they decide it makes sense for Carla to stay at home with their newborn for a year instead of hiring a live in nanny and Carla still bringing in the salary. And it's interesting because this this discussion is like primarily an economic one, which like when we talk about like maternity leave and paternity leave and their like roles in the hospital and stuff is a whole kind of interesting thing to think about behind the scenes here. But she decides to stay home because her salary is roughly equal to like nannying. One thing I want to mention here is that Scrubs is a very joke dense sitcom, extraordinarily so. It's quite similar to Arrested Development in that way. So we won't necessarily be like pointing out every gag, every bit, every joke that is happening, especially because so many of them are visual. Mm -hmm. But just take it as a given that what we're saying is basically funny. (laughs) So we cut to at the park, JD, who is played by Zach Braff and the main character of the show, and Elliot, who is a woman played by Sarah Chalk. And um, high school me had such a crush on her. Oh, yeah. I mean... Same, still. Is that <laughs> fine? Like, <laughs> yep. Also, I want to point out that Elliot is dressed like the embodiment of mid two thousands fashion, like the pastel colored polo with mm. with like low rise jeans. It was very much a time capsule there. So they're talking about something. I think about their roommates, and they are also exes, and eventually spoilers their end game like they get together at the end of the series that shouldn't surprise anyone but they help a woman who has collapsed and this woman patty miller perceives them to be singing now patty miller is played by stephanie DeBruzzo, who as you mentioned has an extensive history of being a puppeteer on things like sesame street yep so big time puppeteering this isn't just like hanging out in central park this is real stuff 
what she's primarily known for is likely her role as Kate Monster on the Broadway musical Avenue Q. Avenue Q is probably known and or hated among <laughs> among a certain subset of musical theater people as being the musical that quote unquote unjustly won the Tony Award for Best Musical over Wicked. Mm, that is a big deal. I'm not even involved in musical drama, and I understand that that sounds a little ridiculous. Yes. Now, I think I'm on Wicked Crew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Avenue Q. I've seen Avenue Q, uh, not on Broadway, I've seen it on tour, but I don't know whether I would like it as much now because. I don't know if you read the description for Avenue Q, but it's basically puppets, but like early 20s life and like crass and crude. Mm, Okay. And this, to me, this whole like children's thing, but crass and crude is kind of played out. Mm, Sure. Yeah, I agree. But anyways, like I said, Wicked Heads hate it for that reason, because they felt like Wicked deserved it. (laughs) Yes. So she collapses. And then when she sort of comes to... She sees JD and Elliot and a few other people uh, standing over her and they are singing to her. Right. And so when we when we say that she perceives people to be singing, we don't we're not just told this, we're shown this, right? We see it basically from her perspective. And that's what is the musical component of this episode. Anytime this woman is present <laughs> throughout the rest of the episode, every character in the scene is singing in musical fashion. Yes. And that's actually a very crucial detail here scenes where she is explicitly not in or passes by and then leaves they go from like singing to not singing it's really well done actually it's pretty funny i mean that itself is a gag in the show and it's like because like they'll be talking normally and she'll walk into the room and then they just start singing and then she leaves and they're back to normal i i agree we transition to the hospital entrance as um jd and elliot hop out of an ambulance trying to figure out what's going on and um i liked what jd has to say here which he just kind of shrugs and says the mind is a freaky thing it can do all sorts of weird tricks musical hallucinations are one of them so to be clear at this point they're still talking but then the ambulance doors open patty is wheeled out and all of a sudden, we go right into the opening number, Welcome to Sacred Heart. And this is like a big, this is a huge musical part and number. Like, it's very theatric. There's tons of dancers and backup people. And it's like really performant compared to a lot of the other singing that happens in the rest of the episode, which is more duets and solos and other smaller numbers. Right. So a lot of the individual numbers here in this episode, a lot of them are explicitly like doing other numbers or like doing tropes from Mm -hmm. Broadway musicals. This one isn't necessarily like a specific song that they're doing in the way that other um, numbers will be. But this one is generally like, like you said, it's the big opening number. Um, It's a big ensemble number. The full cast is there heavily choreographed. It's like, you know, one of the big numbers from Meredith Wilson's music, man. Like it's, it's very elaborate, very old school Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, so should we talk a little bit about musical hallucinations and the basis for them? Because Scrubs didn't fully just make this up. Musical hallucinations are a thing and musical disorders more broadly are a thing. I think we can keep it narrowly to talking about musical hallucinations in this episode, but should note that there are all sorts of musical disorders that you can have in the brain. Like this was specifically inspired by a case report, you know, one of them read about somebody having musical disorders caused by the thing that will end up being what Patty has. Right. Now, they don't necessarily 
manifests as speech being turned into singing is, I think, the main distinction that I think we want to emphasize right off the bat here. Yeah, I mean, if we're just kind of calling out the neuroscience inaccuracies of this <laughs> musical show, <laughs> it, it is that. At least there has not been any reports that we we've been able to find where somebody's speech or like sounds in the environment are somehow like transformed into musicality in the brain. Most often these musical hallucinations are just like out of nowhere effectively and completely concocted in the brain. And a lot of them manifest as like seizure auras, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we can we can probably get into it, maybe we'll do it now, of like what the origination of these are because they actually have like many varied originations some of them come from uh seizure activity many of them are in people with hearing loss um, but other ones can come from i guess you'd say more exotic <laughs> conditions okay so for now just um they are a thing don't quite happen exactly in the way that it happens here but that's okay because it gives us an excuse to talk about things so after this big opening number jd and dr cox dr cox played by john c mcginley they are talking about her case, and it turns out that Patty has passed both audiological and neurological exams, so they think it's purely psychological, which is a reasonable hypothesis. Um, a lot of these like hearing disorders and stuff, they are psychological, and even if they aren't psychological in origin, oftentimes the treatment path is psychological and involves therapy simply to equip the patient to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much of medicine in general but especially like neuroscience and psychological medicine is about only treating people if they're actually experiencing distress, right? You can have something that's like very much a disorder or odd. And as long as you can handle it in a way that doesn't distress you, not a big deal. <laughs> it's funny because I was talking to somebody who has an auditory background about uh, tinnitus. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that one of the most common, like, first line, quote unquote, treatments for like mild, annoying tinnitus is like, just have the person wear shoes two sizes too small, because then you're paying attention to your shoes and not the ringing in your ears. <laughs> and wow, that's funny. Yep. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, that in some ways, that's um, how they treat some forms of like chronic pain, right? Is they do like, little like acute pain sensations periodically that like, distract you from ongoing chronic pain right and like even many spinal cord stimulators just they just mask the pain with numbness or tingling or buzzing like they call it paresthesia yeah exactly so the doctors are not quite sure what is going on so they decide to take a stool sample from ms miller and which leads us into our next number yeah i i, I guess it's the most kind of like jokey childish number of the show uh, it's called everything comes down to poo and there are just uh lots of number two jokes and whatever yeah so this number is jd and turk plus some of the staff and so far as i'm aware there's no specific well-known broadway number that they're parodying here i think it's we're still in the sort of general show tune style parody although there is this like weird little like odd Radio City Rocket like kick choreography at the end as they're marching down the hallway. It's it's it is still very like a relatively high energy and like dancey, I feel like. Very much feels like show style and I think the like walk down the hallway at the end as you emphasized shows it off. 
Mm-hmm. I will point to a specific series of jokes where like people barge in. They're like, what about this disorder? Check the poo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been shot in the arm. <laughs> Check the poo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the so there yeah all these people are coming into the disorders like check the poo check the poo and this guy's like a homeless man threw poo on me and they're like check the poo and he's like who's poo his then yours <laughs> yeah there's some good bits so the entire thesis of this number is that stool samples are apparently the you know end all and be all for lab work at a hospital so after that number elliot is talking now patty is not here so this is like talking talking so she's just talking to JD, and she announces that her offer on a house has been accepted. And um, as mentioned before, Elliot and JD live together, and JD thinks he's moving in with her, which she's like, uh, what? But she's having a hard time saying that to him. Right, because, and I forget exactly what the circumstances are in season six, but like, apparently JD's having a tough time. Yeah. And so Carla has made the decision, as mentioned before, to stay at home with her nearborn for a year. And the staff is gathering to say goodbye to Carla as Miss Miller looks on, which leads us to the we're going to miss you, Carla number, which is performed entirely with the actress for Carla, Judy Reyes, in a chair, because apparently at the time she had like a broken ankle or something. Oh, really? <laughs> I actually found that like very odd because I'm like, she's not sick. <laughs> like, why is she just like, being wheeled around and like sitting in a chair this entire time? That makes so much more sense. Yep. So this uh, number is sung by Carla, Turk, and various members of the Sacred Heart staff, including um, apparently four people that are in a real life uh, barbershop quartet with each other. Oh, that's cool. So this is like a high energy Greece style number um, where they're all just telling Carla how much they'll miss her while Turk like, you know, celebrates that she's staying at home and will be helping raise the kid. That's the number. Yeah. (laughs) So the camera follows Patty from the Carla number, which takes place like in the lobby and follows her to somewhere in the hospital where she confronts Dr. Cox uh, asking for straight answers before JD interrupts. And I don't know what this number is called. I just call it the Dr. Cox patter song. But so a running gag in Scrubs is that Dr. Cox constantly belittles JD and calls him girls' names instead of actually calling him his name. And and that has not necessarily aged well as like a gag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, true. But Dr. Cox's like general belittling trip treatment of JD still holds. <laughs> the Dr. Cox patter song. So this is just straight up it's Dr. Cox, JD, and Patty and they're doing Gilbert and Sullivan patter song. They're doing I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General. Mm-hmm. It's very straightforward. And it's literally just him belittling JD in that style. I think it's such a perfect choice of style. If somebody had said, like, how do you imagine, like, Dr. Cox's musical number is going to be in this? It would have been that one. Yes. <laughs> and it, it's notable in, in that it's actually one of the only numbers where Stephanie DeBruzzo gets to sing. Mm-hmm. True. And probably the only one where she actually gets to belt. Yeah, it it, it kind of stands out like that. I was like watching this episode and that like it catches your uh, attention. Okay, so it's an interesting choice because you have a legitimate Broadway leading lady. Mm-hmm. And you actually do not have her sing very much. Yeah, it probably helps elevate the rest of the singing in the show to not have her just be like dominating all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I actually agree very much when she sings. It is painfully obvious how much of a better singer she is than basically everyone around her. 
Yeah. Judy Reyes and Donald Faison, who play Turk and Carlo, they're they're fine. Um, Zach Braff is a weak singer. Uh, Sarah Chalk is a weak singer. I just really hope these people are listening to this episode and they write into narrativepodcast at gmail.com and they're like, who and the f*** is this Steven guy to judge us? And when I say weak, I mean like they're hitting the notes, but they sound like they had they got a voice coach for a week and they're fine. Yeah. And, and to be also clear, they're like they're weak in the context of people who are like in musicals and do singing in yes. the public eye. They're like strong relative to the general public. <laughs> yes. Like on the bell curve, they are 1 million percent above. I'm like way on like the absolutely <laughs> end of the bell curve in terms of singing ability. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. Like this whole episode feels like a proper musical of people who are capable of singing. It's just when you see Stephanie in comparison to the rest of them, it's just still obvious how good she is. Exactly. After that, we have, and this is one of the uh, parts you talked about where Patty comes in and out of a scene. Yeah, I love this part. This is where we get Elliot and Carla actually talking about their various problems with their guy partners. (laughs) But we actually have Miss Miller brought in and pass by them as they're having this discussion. And as soon as, as she enters, they like go into like a brief little like... I don't know what you'd call this. Like they sing a few of their phrases of their conversation and then she leaves and they begin speaking normally again. And it, it it's really, I mean, this whole scene exists just to drive home the fact that when she enters, people sing. It's just playing on that gag. Right. And it really sells the idea that like, this isn't just a Scrubs musical episode. This is an episode of Scrubs that is musical because this person has this disorder. Yeah. The place that Miss Miller is being brought into is a diagnostic imaging room. Dr. Cox explicitly calls this a CAT scan, but it looks more like just a stripped down MRI. It's kind of funny because the whole show actually feels like pretty legitimately a hospital with hospital things and like hospital equipment around. And then this is just like a weird pared down like clean room of an MRI. And MRIs can be in really plain areas, but this was a little weird. Well, usually they're also in like closed off suites with big doors this just has like drywall and windows yeah and it's like there's a main hallway like five foot from the mri (laughs) (laughs) the imaging though is basically the catalyst for the next number which is one of the showpiece numbers of the episode Uh, and so the whole idea is that patty doesn't think she's crazy she thinks that there is a you know there is a very specific etiology for like why she is hearing these this music Mm-hmm. Dr. Cox and JD are like, all right, fine, we'll take some imaging. But if this imaging comes out clean, you're going to have to face the fact that this is psychological, uh, which is one of the quote unquote truths in this next number, which is when the truth comes out. Mm-hmm. So this number is a full ensemble number. Everyone's involved. They do some fun little camera work here. Basically, it's one of the ones that is specifically doing a thing. It's Do You Hear the People Sing from Les Mis. And it's that combined with the classic Act One finale medleys where at the end of act one of a musical, you do musical callbacks to to the hooks from like a bunch of different songs and interpolate them into like that finale song. Yeah. So overall, well done. A cool like tie in and allusion to many other things. I also <laughs> like that you call out that it's do you hear the people sing, which is like this meta level joke, right? I mean, that's a, a fun number to call back to. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that completely went over my head. <laughs> She does hear the people sing is is the answer. 
In the middle of the number, um, there's a scene with neurologist plus Dr. Cox who are in a separate room, so they're not singing. They review the imaging and they're like, holy crap, look at the temporal lobe. This is the largest aneurysm I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, first off, the like language here is kind of funny. Secondly, we get our basis, which is the actual call into the case that the episode is based on. That's right. So um, this was specifically inspired by a Mayo Clinic case report of a 61-year-old woman reporting musical hallucinations. Interestingly, though, it was not a extremely large aneurysm. It was two small aneurysms. Right. And so I guess that's what made it kind of funny that they use the language like the largest aneurysm I've ever seen. I guess I don't know why. <laughs> I can't, has to be the language. Is it like bigger aneurysms mean more craziness and that justifies the like amount of craziness that's going on in this episode? Uh, I don't know. I think it's also maybe to sort of drive home the seriousness of this condition because up until now, it's just like, oh, it's this fun little thing where you hear people singing. Yeah, true. The tone changes here for a second. Exactly. And so I think it's to sell the seriousness of this because uh, like you were saying, like if it doesn't cause distress, so far as I'm concerned, it's it's just a win. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it'd get annoying living life like that or if it would continue to be just like entertaining because during no parts of this does she seem that distressed by it, like you point out. She seems bemused. Most, <laughs> like the face she's making is bemusement most of the time. Oh, yeah. Like when we get into the next number, like I think her facial expressions in that are hilarious. So. Yeah. She's great. But the real life patients of these, like, they seem to be fairly intractable and severe, right? Like, to the point of debilitating. Yeah, I think it varies, of course, like many conditions. But yeah, some people, like, this is very problematic. And for some people, they are more casual. Uh, there's some fun stories, well, kind of case studies, I guess we'll get into, of people who, like, wanted to keep them <laughs> because they were entertaining. They deliver this news to Patty, and she's basically slated for surgery to treat the aneurysms, which leads us into our next number, uh, which is probably the most well-known number from this show, actually, Guy Love, which is a JD and Turk duet where they're basically just describing their completely heterosexual bromance to Patty, because that's a thing you do as a doctor. Yeah. One thing that's kind of like overlooked i guess in this whole like in scrubs in general is that turk is like hanging around all the time because he's a surgeon right yeah yeah but he's just like constantly like hanging out doing like rounds and like patient visits with like jd and stuff and it's kind of like strange well i mean here like <laughs> patty has been referred to turk for surgery right no because turk is not a neurosurgeon <laughs> which we see later yeah. oh that's right i think he's a thoracic surgeon right yeah something like that I remember there's this episode where he, where he assists on the first heart transplant in that hospital. Got it. Yes, you are correct. He is not a neurosurgeon. Yeah, so why the hell is he there? You're right. <laughs> yeah, it's extra funny that they're singing this trick. She's probably like, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so this is a classic like romance duet parody. It's got some R&B elements in it. It's good. And it's like the starkest contrast because like the scene before this is kind of like delivering the serious news of like, hey, you have an aneurysm. It's like mm -hmm. Dr. Cox sitting on the bed, like very serious. And then you get this, which is like <laughs> just the opposite. So we lead from that into Elliot and Carla finally telling Turk and JD about their decisions. Um, the men take this poorly. JD in particular, like just looks at like Turk and like makes a gesture and walks away. <laughs> and, Jay and Elliot's like, what does that mean? And Turk translates, like, that means we're not talking anymore. <laughs> Which serves to further sell this, you know, 
idea behind guy love. Yeah, true. They have all their like nonverbal communications down pat. And I mean, like this whole like piece is consistent with the whole like scrub series how jd and turk respond to this and kind of being like these like immature male leads in some ways like Mm -hmm. just emphasized here again and turk is equally not pleased with this decision which is basically and he says well i thought family was the most important thing to puerto ricans so i haven't seen scrubs in a long time um and i don't even know if i ever watched it completely but this part felt like offensive to me hearing him say that and then her responding with for the last time i'm dominican and that's the next musical number we get so it is this pan latin style number with and and they're like doing like salsa slash tango slash pan latin dance ish moves during this number and this number is a turk and carla duet yeah nice call and response kind of stuff Yes. What's interesting here, though, is this number actually has a major element of a good musical number in that characters come to a decision. Mm-hmm. The number is an inflection point. And that's a, that's a very important thing for certain aspects of like musical numbers. You don't want them to just be thrown in there. Which basically everything previous to this effectively has. Yes. Also, do you remember why Patty is here? <laughs> No, that's the what's this whole scene is weird because it's all shot in like Patty's patient room, like just in front of her bed. (laughs) And she's just watching it. And she doesn't, to my knowledge, doesn't participate in the discussion at all. You just get her facial expressions, which are fantastic. Yes. But like in both Guy Love and and for the last time I Dominican, like Stephanie DeBruzzo is just sitting there making like bemused, entertained and just baffled expressions the entire time in the background. And it's hilarious. Yeah, in this in this uh, tango number, they actually like use her bed as like prop piece and they like oh, pose right. on it and stuff <laughs> in front of her. It's it's strange. They come to this decision, and then we cut to JD apparently emotionally processing things very quickly, and he accepts Elliot's decision, which leads us into our f- penultimate number, Friends Forever, which is JD and Elliot plus the rest of the ensemble, and this is a very cheerful high energy number what it really reminds me of is you're the one that i want from greece or you can't stop the beat from hairspray Mm -hmm. which are cheerful high energy ending numbers so you know they're all cheerful they're doing like 1950s style dancing and everything all around ms miller's bed before patty interrupts and she's like guys what the (laughs) (laughs) and that's not what she says but (laughs) <laughs> it is kind of funny because it's like a correct response and like rude awakening to like the hey like i'm a patient here <laughs> and the last three scenes have been you guys just like playing out your personal dramas on my hospital bed i mean when you put it that way <laughs> and so patty redirects the conversation shall we say again she's slated for surgery and vascular like brain surgery I don't actually know much about it. Is is it generally high risk or? I know about it. I watched one last week. Um, vascular brain surgery gets to happen in a different type of operating suite than like a standard neurosurgery. Okay, so you don't have like the big like stealth station or brain lab thing over you. Yeah, you get a different thing instead, which helps navigate the endovascular like leads or catheters that you're using. It's a very cool kind of system. Basically consider it like an, an XY plane x-ray system. So it has like these moving plates that kind of like spin around the head or body. You can move, and you can move the table within the moving plates. And it lets you 
um, visualize the endovascular lead from two different angles. And you can actually, they don't have to be completely uh, perpendicular. You can adjust the X and Y planes. And they use that to navigate the, the catheter. And there's, a, there's many different ways of navigating catheters to aneurysms and all sorts of different like controls. Uh, so that'd be like the endovascular route if you were addressing an aneurysm through that means. But you can also do aneurysm clips through normal craniotomies. We, we have to assume that they did it through an actual craniotomy because she is shown later with a shaved head. So everything I just told you was a lie. And this was just done in a normal neurosurgical suite. <laughs> what specialty does this usually? Is this like a subspecialty of neurosurgery? Yeah, basically. So often it's still a neurosurgeon, so a neurovascular surgeon. And sometimes they can either specialize in just one route or the other. Some of them do both. And then this is kind of connected to like interventional radiologists who do other things in the body um, through endovascular access. So typically they wouldn't have like the full shaved head, head wrap the way that Patty does. I think it is more common these days to treat aneurysms through endovascular access. Okay. And you'd want to, right? It's less invasive. You don't have to take out a chunk of skull and replace it later. It's... Yeah, you're not cutting through brain tissue to get to like deeper aneurysm targets. But given the where we showed her aneurysm is, uh, maybe it makes sense actually to do it this way. Sure. But to answer your original question, it is actually relatively high risk. Brain surgery is kind of like scary thing in general, right? So yes, Patty interrupts the number and was like, what's going to happen to me? And so this is a this ending number is like this. It's an ensemble number. It's got the full cast around Patty's bed as they're trying to reassure her. They're doing rent here, like stylistically, the somber pop rock style. And it's literally just straight up. They're doing the will I lose my dignity numbers from rent. Again, a good like meta level call out to like what's happening in the scene. Like the name of the musical number you're referring to seems fitting for this scene. So um, the number ends as there's a montage of her, you know, as you mentioned, getting her head shaved and being prepped for surgery and being put under general anesthesia and fades out scene transitions we fade back in she wakes up in a callback to the opening scene where she wakes up with jd and elliot over her she wakes up with all these doctors that don't need to be there <laughs> standing up around her wouldn't that be hilarious if that's the way the pack you worked <laughs> <laughs> they always just all stood around you yep from the moment you get into the pack you they just loom over you until you wake up and tell them you're okay <laughs> yeah i don't know why that's such a common trope it's like probably almost never how it happens yeah, but nonetheless, it happens. And and then she asks them, did it work? And uh, Dr. Cox says, notably, you're going to have to tell me. I can't believe this scene. <laughs> Only because I just, I assumed I was ready for the cast to sing and then reveal that it was like a joke that they were still singing. <laughs> as f***ed up as that would be, that would be a great bit. <laughs> I was fully expecting Dr. Khan's to answer with like, you tell me, <laughs> but he didn't. He just says it. I mean, I think it would have been crazy tonal whiplash even for this show <laughs> to go from the super serious just to that bit and then to the relatively actually serious ending, you know? So yeah, yeah. I'm almost certain someone in the writer's room suggested it. Like, like, there's no way somebody didn't, right? Right. But that is not what happened. Her problem was fixed. She looks all like happy after a neurosurgery with her shaved head. Everything's everything's nice. So these always end with JD like 
as a voiceover talking about the lesson of the episode, right? And and so basically he's like, oh, well, in musicals, there's always a happy ending, but not necessarily in life. Also, in musicals, there's not always a happy ending, just to throw that out there. But then we fade out with scenes of everyone sort of got what they wanted. Elliot gets to live alone like she wanted, but now she's actually a little lonely. Carla is going back to work, which is what she wanted, but she also wishes she could spend more time with her kid. Yeah. And then the last shot is Patty, Patty Miller. Um, She got what she wanted. She won't die from these aneurysms, but she kind of misses the music everywhere as she hums the hook to Welcome to Sacred Heart as we roll credits. Some good lessons. So this was your introduction to musical theater uh, or or musicals. (laughs) Effectively. Yeah. Um, Entertaining. (laughs) To be clear... I do watch theater of some kind with musical numbers in it. Okay. I also watch, like I go to ballets and things where it's like you're getting like kind of acting and story components with a lot of music. This is different. But yeah, uh, overall entertaining. A little bit like the progression of information, like the total kind of like dramatic progression of the story of Scrubs is like slowed, I think, when you have musical content. But Mm -hmm. overall good. And I think like at least in my opinion, was like seemed very well produced for what I was expecting for like this TV series musical. And I think the songwriting was better than you might expect as well from like non-professional songwriters. Yeah. Uh, Apparently there was like one person who wrote almost all the lyrics for all of these songs and they were not like a lyricist. But like (laughs) that does not stand out, uh, I think, when you're listening to the song. Right. They like fun rhyming schemes. They like sound good, <laughs> feel balanced. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So next time a prominent uh, Broadway musical is touring and is in town in Salt Lake, I will try to twist your arm into going. Yes, uh, I'll do it. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think Hamilton just left like two weeks, a week ago. <laughs> okay. Not that we would have gotten tickets anyways, but <laughs> at this late in the game. We don't live in New York. This is one of the drawbacks of living where we live. <laughs> we only get these things on tour. So like, you know, some number of years later. All right. So musical hallucinations. Yes. Um, as we covered at the beginning, real things, many different causes. Maybe we should just expand on the case study that this is based on a little bit. As we mentioned, it was found to be due to two small aneurysms, but much like Patty's case, this was only found because she was so insistent on like, trying to find a cause rather than just attributing it to psychological reasons. Now, um, these symptoms began as tinnitus, so just ringing in her ears, and then escalated to music perceptions. Now, this is, I think the crazy thing about this is how long she did live with it. And I don't know what her like kind of attempts at getting decisions and treatment were during that period. But like she had musical perceptions for over a year, which I think is just it, we'll see in some of the other case studies that a lot of people choose or like did live with these things for a long time because they didn't even know what to like do about them or where they were coming from. A free radio, what's not to like? <laughs> what's interesting is that apparently her musical hallucinations were seasonal variations. Like she would hear Christmas music in December and a lot of them had like religious connections. The case report specifically calls out Amazing Grace as a thing she would hear weirdly often. And eventually they found that the musical hallucinations were associated with seizure activity in her right temporal lobe caused by these aneurysms. Right. And this is basically to jump the gun on it. This is consistent with the 
almost all other case reports of musical hallucinations, which is that there are some sort of abnormal activity in temporal lobe. And so many of them are also so connected to like strong musical memories. So in this case, like Christmas music is like an obvious one, right? It's like replayed so often. You hear it so often on this like recurring basis. Same with religious music. You go to the same Sunday service and you hear it so often. Um, it seems like to be these types of songs that get recalled so often to musical hallucinations. Some people report uh, like patriotic songs, like things they hear, like soccer games or, you know, uh, in military service or that have to do like that have like some strong connection. Just imagine being the poor person that gets stuck with Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You stuck in their head as their musical hallucination. You almost don't have to imagine it because you hear it so often. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm that person. <laughs> in any retail outlet from between Thanksgiving and Christmas, yes. <laughs> I guess to like hit on that, that is basically the problem in some ways with these musical hallucinations because a lot of us choose to just listen to music a lot of the time it's usually not distressing to people to just like hear music that they like the problem with these musical hallucinations is that you hear music that you maybe don't necessarily like that much all the time and like oftentimes on repeat Uh, so a lot of people who have musical hallucinations kind of report not a lot of variety in their songs Um, So one of the first case reports that Oliver Sacks goes over in his book, Musicophilia, which I've now recommended on this podcast three times, and you should read. In chapter six on musical hallucinations, he talks about this patient who only heard four different songs on like repeat in her hallucinations. And she was just like mad about that. She's like, (laughs) I've I've had about I've had these for years and years. But like, if we could find a way to increase the like repertoire of these, I wouldn't be that bothered. (laughs) Okay, so I have a question. Can you just like put on headphones and just like, listen to another song? Yeah, so for different people, it manifests differently. But for most people, it seems like the reason I think they occur in people so often with hearing loss is because they come from like a lack of input. And so as soon as you provide some sort of input to auditory cortex, generally the hallucinations go away. And so they really only tend to affect people in like who are low of hearing or like are in quiet situations. And so oftentimes the fix, just like for tinnitus, is to just have some other sound playing. Right. And there is the neuronal basis for tinnitus in which researchers at the University of Michigan have have hypothesized that it's due to maladaptive plasticity resulting from hearing loss. That's why, I mean, tinnitus and hearing loss are like, they're very comorbid. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. This is like a little bit more abstract and not as concrete, but I think this is like the basis for kind of how we justify musical hallucinations or kind of where we think they come from touches a little bit on this kind of general theory of the brain, which is that like a lot of these pathways basically exist to like take noisy inputs and like refine them into something like comprehensible and understandable in context, undo the kind of like Uh, useful information logical input of your ears and you just have like no hearing you just have this kind of like noisy input source and the brain is basically like oh how what do i do with this like messy information and it basically like in some cases catalogs it as ringing just tones Mm -hmm. or sometimes as music and i think that's kind of one of the things that's interesting to emphasize is that uh obviously we're focusing on the most interesting type of musical hallucinations which are full-on musical pieces 
But a lot of people have partial musical hallucinations where it's not quite tinnitus, but it's not really like music they recognize. It'll be like little phrases from music that they know or like repeating notes or patterns. And so it's not always so pleasant. I guess just to keep monologuing on this, just because I think it's so interesting. One of the, some of the case studies that sex emphasizes musicophilia are the kind of difference between people who are music listeners and people who are music writers. And it's very rare, for example, for music listeners, people who aren't musicians to concoct like original melodies through music hallucination, at least. The book covers all sorts of kind of like different scenarios where people have brain traumas and suddenly become virtuosos, but that's a different concept. In here, he's really emphasizing this difference between musical imagery, being able to imagine music and kind of like hear it in your head versus like literal hallucinations where you feel like you're hearing it from the outside environment. And in these hallucination cases, he's basically like people just hear stuff that's familiar to them. It's almost like a memory disorder as much as it is like a auditory input disorder. And he points out though, that this is not necessarily the case as soon as you are like a skilled musician, where Sometimes these hallucinations are just like original pieces or songs. Uh, one of the things I pointed out earlier in the episode was that some people didn't find these too distressing. And in fact, some people kind of enjoyed them. One was an example of a guy who basically only heard musical hallucinations when he heard like droning sounds in the background. So like plane engines or like hmm. car engines. And so for 10 years, he would just hear musical hallucinations while he was on flights and no other time. And so he was just like, yeah, I get free like in-flight music. Like, why would I <laughs> stop this? Like, <laughs> It's completely fine. I, I think one thing that was kind of surprising about the book is how many people have reported hearing musical hallucinations. Like, I don't know about you. I have never felt like I've heard a musical hallucination. No, I mean, I get ringing in my ears occasionally, especially when it's like quiet at night, but never anything that I would characterize as music. Right. But Sachs reports like several different times in this book, like presenting in groups of like 20 or 30 people and having two or three people raise their hands. So like anecdotally, 10% of people saying like at some point they've experienced musical hallucination, which is crazy to me. So it's weirdly common. Yeah. Statistically speaking, you and I almost certainly know somebody who has based on those. That. Yeah. And as I think about it, I have had people tell me about this and... I didn't, I guess, make the connection at the time that it was likely like a, I assumed it was something kind of different. I, I wouldn't consider it dreams, hallucinations, for example. And so like, I kind of like wrote it, this, this person's story off. It's like, oh, you're probably like dreaming or something. But like my family members have told me about musical hallucinations they've had, like when being home alone in the quiet for too long. We do have to make the distinction, though, like having a song stuck in your head or something. That's not necessarily a musical hallucination. That perception isn't literal, actual sound. Right, exactly. With something like tinnitus, when I have ringing in my ears, I literally hear that ringing. And that's very distinct from like having, you know, say the triple dent gum song from Inside Out stuck in your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's kind of a funny human experience to be able to like say that and everybody's like, oh, yeah, I know the difference. Like, I, I understand what you're saying. Difference between perception, having st something stuck in your head, even though like it's hard to actually say, like it's hard to describe that. In both ways, you kind of hear them, mm -hmm. but in the musical hallucination or like ringing in your ears way, you are literally hearing it, which is which is what makes it so, so very interesting. Right. And this is this is even like manifested in functional MRI and other forms of imaging, 
where you can see activation in areas of the audio cortex that are really there for picking up external sounds and processing external sounds. And you see these areas activate, so to say, um, in these musical hallucination episodes, but not in musical imagery. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's no reason for me to recap uh, <laughs> every every case study from Sachs' musical hallucinations chapter. But if you haven't read this book, it's a really excellent accompaniment to this <laughs> uh, to this episode. And I haven't read it, but there's apparently one essay that was adapted into a movie about like somebody's amnesia being they were able to sort of treat it through music. Yeah, yeah. So this whole book covers various music disorders. And one of the things we've talked about previously is how closely tied to memory music is. And that it's like a good way for kind of like, I guess, coordinating the circuits that help you coordinate and like the recall of memory. So we will get to that uh, film at some point. Our last Oliver Sacks adaptation left a bad taste in our mouths. So (laughs) it it might be a bit. And if you don't understand why we say that, go listen to the At First Sight episode on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Cool. So shall we move into our recurring segments? Yes. I think this might be the first episode that is longer than the source material. <laughs> I don't know. The Matrix was four hours. <laughs> well, it was, it was four hours raw recording. I edited it down to like two and two point. I edited it down to basically a few minutes shorter. <laughs> yeah. Our recurring segments here: most neuro moment and most neuro moment. I mean, neuro moment was just uh, for me the like mention of the aneurysm. It's like, oh hey, look. They talked about like a real case study piece. <laughs> okay. That's exciting. So my most neuro moment is going to be, and I'm a little surprised you didn't pick this, uh, how they only sing when Patty is in the room. Oh, yeah. I think that's done really well. And it's not necessarily a neuro thing per se, but it sort of is because it speaks to exactly how she is experiencing this, right? Yeah. For my near all moment, this isn't even neuro related at all, I guess, but I was, uh, I don't know, man, like this trope of like husbands not listening to their wives, <laughs> like it just kills me sometimes because it's like treated as so like casual and okay and also like expected. And for him to like not like we didn't talk about all the like things they talk about in their like tango pan Latin scene. But like he goes on to like basically admit that he like doesn't really know her like family, where she grew up, like where she went to school, just like nothing about her. And it's kind of like, ah, so funny. Like Turk doesn't know anything about his wife. And I'm just like, man, this is up. Nick, (laughs) not all of us have known our partners since they were 14. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I do have a little advantage, I guess, but uh, it's hard for me to conceptualize. (laughs) That was a weird (laughs) sentence. I realize this now. My partner and I are the same age, and we always have been. <laughs> okay, so gonna move on from that quickly. Uh, my near all moment here is uh, the weirdly bare diagnostic suite. Oh yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, I mean, they also they call it out as a CT scan, but do you think it, could a CT resolve that? Oh, aneurysm. Yeah. Uh. This is I'm showing how much how little I know about imaging. So uh apparently yes. Okay. Especially maybe the largest aneurysm you've ever seen. <laughs> okay, well, if any imaging experts want to correct me, please send me an email. Like I said, I do not know very much about imaging. 
And as we've said many times in this episode, we're almost neuro imposters in some ways. <laughs> we are not clinicians. And we mostly talk about clinical neurology. Yeah. Sure. No kidding. We know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> okay, so ratings. I am going to give this the Narratives Tony Award for Best Musical of the Year. <laughs> okay, this is the best musical of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think for what it is, it works. It is something the production staff wanted to do, like you said. They clearly had a ton of fun doing it, and I feel like that comes out in all the performances. The actors are not Broadway caliber singers for the most part, but it's fine. It's fun, and they don't hang any of their cast out to dry, except for maybe JD, because he gets the most numbers, and he's among the weaker singers in the cast, but still, it it all works, and the Nero is just tenuous enough to like be like, all right, we understand. And we got to talk about these cool things that are musical hallucinations. So you know what? I can't hate this. Yep. Good episode. Good fun. Real case studies behind it. No complaints. Okay. Well, uh, so that'll do it for our episode on season six, episode six of Scrubs, my musical. Nick, what is our takeaway from this episode? Yeah. Read Musicophilia. It's a good book. It's fun. It's like accessible, and it has a chapter called Musical Hallucinations. I mean, come on. While we were recording this, I literally ordered it on Amazon. <laughs> you're you're going to love it. It's a good book. With that, thank you, Nick, for joining me as always. This was a blast. I hope you enjoyed your introduction to Broadway-style musicals, I suppose. Yes, I'm ready to consume more of them. Uh, I right. probably won't start with uh, Cruel Intentions, the musical, but I'll... See, nope. it actually went off of streaming services um, at the beginning of March, unfortunately. Oh, shoot. Okay, dang it. Um, you should start with the SpongeBob SquarePants musical because it's on Paramount+. Plus. Okay, will do. So thank you to everyone who listens. If anyone has any questions or concerns or wants to correct what I don't know about imaging, send an email to narrativespodcast at gmail.com. That's N-E-U-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S podcast at gmail.com. We did a lot of callbacks in this episode to previous episodes. So if anyone wants to catch up on those, you can find those on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. We are narratives, the same number, same name you presumably found us under. And we'll see you next time. Yes. Hear you? No, we don't, we don't hear our audience. Okay. <laughs> Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical. I don't know what this is. <laughs> uh, do you know what Cruel Intentions is? No, I don't. I know nothing about anything. <sighs> Damn it. <laughs> okay, this bit doesn't work then. <laughs> um, I can look it up. <laughs>